spidey senses tingling. Now, uh, he's the host that's going to teach me how to ride the rail like Ponyboy Curtis and the Outsiders. He's slim. This is your Paper Keg Podcast, episode 213. Ponyboy. Ponyboy. Stay going. <laughs> Daily. Daily. movie was terrible. Oh. Paperkeg.com. You know, the hottest comic book website out there. And we do a podcast. Three friends. They read comic books. They read the same comic book. And they do a podcast about it and talk about it. Saga of the Swamp Thing, book three. Must you clap? Clap for them killers. Give it up for them gangsters. One time for them killers. Uh, one more time for the gangsters. Doing his best Dave Chappelle as a white man impression. We have our VP of merch, merchandise, events coordinator for Paper Keg. You know, it's been a while. We might have to schedule some kind of meetup. My Paper Keg meetup. Word. Mm. To your mothers, as they say. Mm. Dale underscore a silver fox. Facebook phenom, welcome back to the show. You know, it feels great to be back center stage once again with Paper Keg. We're here uh, trying to get back on that Thursday schedule that we love so much. And uh, it's it's more of a, it's even more of a feat because, frankly, I'm going to tell you up front that my family is not home right now and they will not be home until tomorrow. So me having the uh, self-discipline... To be here right now instead of on some bender uh, like Dustin Hoffman and The Graduate floating in the pool somewhere. Yeah, I just, I, I'd like to commend myself, pat myself on the back. Great job. Yeah, thank you. It's, you know, I'm doing pretty okay. In it's one. like some kind of offline Ashley Madison scenario happening. Yeah, with myself. <laughs> Jonesy loves beer writer unpublished writer he is has been voted uh, four years running least favorite host of the show it's a title that you know might never leave his stead welcome back to the show thank you um you know slim's uh stovetop fan hat has often been voted the more popular host than me on this show. So I just prefer that my hosting duties never go well-received and that I just cement my place as the most terrible part about this program. Please, just keep it that way. What a speech. What a speech. I'm feeling hot. I'm coming in hot. You're coming in hot. You know, you were late. You had uh, like four margaritas before the show. Mm. Um, <laughs> good grief what a show we have tonight book three saga of the swamp thing 
we're we're doing it. It's the summer of Alan Moore, summer of Swampy. Hashtag Swamp Yes. The vote came in. It was unanimous. It really was. It's never been a more unanimous vote in this show's history. All seven viewers voted yes. Word. Too meta, Jonesy. You're, I mean, this is the. This is what happens. This it's is like the tequila. Give a crap. This is the tequila I said seven, talking. I said seven viewers. It's, it's like he doesn't give a listeners. crap anymore. Man, you guys are just so jaded. You guys just want to end the show, and I'm just trying to be here as your support. Right. That's right. Support, like reverse support, like you're trying to, like you're the insane clown posse trying to talk us in to the suicide. I feel like, like from Jonesy the great would... Malenko album when, uh, you know, the intro of the song, your man in the suicide hotline as uh, Shaggy 2 Dope. <laughs> my war. God. Oh my gosh. There you go. What is going on in your CD album collection? <laughs> I'm just saying, 96, 97. just been underscored. How does that feel? I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't feel that good. Tail underscore. We only had the uh, Don Garvey uh, smoking cough shriek, shriek of a laugh <laughs> right. file. I don't know where that file is. <laughs> but I was going to say, Jonesy, you, would, you should be really voting hard for the end of the show because that means you could take over... You could become the new host. Anonymity would, you know, replace myself as the new third host of the show. I feel like that's your master plan in all this, to, to troll the end of the my, show until it happens. My five-year master plan to eventually take over the hosting duties of a show that I got invited on. I think that's right. This, yeah. is like some, this is like some paper cake Wayne's World 1 plot <laughs> where I'm like Rob Lowe trying to, uh, you know... And like this is Slim's apartment, but that's not Slim's apartment. Roblo's fine. Would be role. the line. I mean, khakijackets.com. I'm not sure if that's Rob a real Lowe. website. Don't go to that website, Please. people. Please, just don't do it. <laughs> now, uh, be, you know, coming back to Dale's story about he's he's all alone. He's got a big day planned tomorrow. I saw it on Twitter.com earlier today. Mm-hmm. You posted a photograph of a canoe. On top of your car, you have a day date tomorrow. What's happening? I have a day date with myself tomorrow. First, I'm going to go to the doctors, get my MRI read to me, make sure my back is okay. My word. You know, uh, I've had a couple back problems uh, unglamorously due to, I think, my posture sitting at a computer chair for years. It isn't any, it's not like I was lifting E.P. Henry outside, something, you know, rugged. Right. It's just me hunched over in a chair for years, like uh, like the sister from Pep Cemetery, <laughs> strapped up in a bed. That movie, we I think we talked about how horrifying that one scene is where the kid gets hit by the truck sure. and the little child shoe is rolling yeah. across the street. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> pretty. It's pretty bad. Uh, so after the doctors, I'm going to uh, yeah. I loaded my it's my kayak actually my Perception Carolina. Is on top of my car now. I loaded it, preloaded it, so I, I had no excuses. You know, I couldn't uh, hem haw around in the morning and say I didn't have time to load it. Right after the doctors, I'm just going to find a lake somewhere and put in, as they say in the business. I'm going to put in yeah. and uh, paddle around for a couple hours. You know, I got my dry bags. So I put my phone in there. It's going to be it's going to be a great morning. Going to be a great day. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm super jealous. Like, super jealous of you right now. Let, that sounds amazing. We are, uh, one of these days, we're going to all 
get together and rent some oh, and God. just hang out. You know, if only Jonesy was able to agree to our yearly OBX family vacations, at one point we could all do it. Oh, my you know, otherwise it's just going to be me and Dale. I feel like this is an underwarranted troll. In the ocean, mm-hmm. you know, holding hands, embracing, you know, like Rocky and Apollo Creed running through the water. Does that make me Mick? What does that make me in that scenario? You're an extra. Drago? Makes you Am an I extra Drago? from that movie. Uh, right, yes. Yeah, the... Fair enough, I guess, guys. Good to say James Brown. Come on. James Brown, God rest his soul. We have a huge show. Margarita's sponsoring tonight's show via Jonesy's Mad Max restaurant uh, dinner this evening. <laughs> Jonesy wearing, is that a work polo? Is your work logo visible on that shirt? Uh, it's not visible, sir. Okay. <laughs> and this is not a work polo. <laughs> I mean. Ugh, boy. Might have to hide this video right afterwards. That's his, we, that's his uh, margarita polo. <laughs> he won that by drinking <laughs> a gallon margarita. It's my rags, you know? And they have his picture on the wall now. We need, to, we need to move on. It's the Summer of Swampy, book three. We talked about book two last week. We all gushed over it. Mm-hmm. Can the streak continue for Alan Moore and Friends? Is it possible, Jonesy? Can you walk us through this book, please? Sure. Uh, if Volume 2 was about Swampy defining his relationship with Abby Cable, then this volume is really about defining who Swampy is, not as this disembodied host of the memory of Alec Holland, but what is an Earth elemental? What is his Swampy legacy? Uh, side note, you'll notice on like the fifth page, it says Swampy observes his territory. I took some troll heat for using that phrase last week, but it is mentioned by Sir Alan Moore. You're a pioneer. Really. Uh, back to, <laughs> back to uh, current synopsis. Uh, you know, this defines what can Swampy do. You know, the first arc is uh, actually... Man, I got a lot of side notes here. It's based on Centralia, uh, the town next to where my wife grew up. So I was pretty familiar with the legend. Uh, and Al Moore twists it, comes up with this character called Nukeface. And, and if we could, uh, for the fireside, let's we can get into that. Hmm. Centralia. Oh, would, you like, would you like me to regale you with what I know about Centralia? I would like to regale you. With what oh, I know. God. Oh, yeah. Swinging regalia, regalia swords at each other. Yep. I do. I mean, it'll, it'll be uh, regalia receipts all over this mother. So. Our penis is on YouTube, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, Nukeface is a character made up for this volume. Uh, he, through a couple issues and a couple different scenarios, uh, hurts swampy pretty bad and in that Drink whenever jensen says swampy we're all dead in the synopsis <laughs> all right i'm gonna call we're him just, alec from now on <laughs> <laughs> all right let's bring it in for the real thing uh alec disembodied conscious of alec uh joe man jonesy because <laughs> He is doing some Macho Man hand motions that Brandy Poffo Savage is the only Listen. man that can replicate what Jonesy's doing with his hands. <laughs> Did you guys have the margaritas or me? Because you guys are jumping all over me right now. Uh, anyway, uh, Alec 
slash swampy throws his consciousness into the earth and discovers more about his powers and more about what exactly he can do. He learns that he has grown beyond the need of the uh, bio-restorative formula, you know, the, uh, the original catalyst for his being. And he also crosses paths with DC's resident occult person, John Constantine. And once again, we're brought into the broader strokes of the DCU. And, uh, you know, before it was their heaven-hell mythology, now we're deep into their occult, you know, such as werewolves and uh, vampires and kind of the fringes of the DCU mythos. And we're shown how the title character of this volume fits in to that world and what exactly is his rank within the greater DC mythos. Uh, a great world building in the only way that Alan Moore can while still making us feel deep tinglies for the main characters. It's Swamp Thing, book three. Which is, is actually the, the, the first appearance of John Constantine. Mm. What? Which is crazy to think about how, how, how much of Constantine is a character on his own now in the DC universe. But this is where, he, I mean, you want to you see where he first had speaking roles. This is it. Yeah, you look great. I can't. I didn't know that. Yeah, is it, Constantine is an Alan Moore creation? Yeah. Like, does he still get any kind of monies for Constantine? I don't know. Well, to get the Jonesy Abacus out to calculate what kind of cash mm-hmm. Alan's bringing in, I might have to retire my bad predictions and calculations. <laughs> the uh, put him out the pasture. And it's funny because the Constantine character in this book really comes across as a character you also want to dislike. Like Swamp Thing does, he yeah. he has he's a mystery like a cult guy in this book that it, that tells Swamp Thing that he he knows about him and he knows what he can do and he has like his secrets about him, but if he helps Constantine, he might reveal them to him. And it's it was great to see Alec, you know, kind of even say several times like I don't want to be jerked around, I don't have time for this. <laughs> but in the kind of uh, Swamp Thing way. And it does build, uh, like, they start the long-term story of the devil kind of coming back. And it was a great, like, kind of small thread across this book. It wasn't really in your face that something big was coming, but Constantine showed up here and there while the main short stories took over for those issues. Yeah, that was one of my main observations, too. I just loved that. Alan Moore was able to weave these stories, yet there's still this like looming central theme to the book, even though it didn't take, it didn't really feature Maine in any of the stories that there are. Like there's all these great standalone stories featuring Swamp Thing, but like overall, this is looming threat that's, Obviously, going to eventually show himself, but this is like a super slow burn main story that you can only pick up on if you're reading these, you know, if you're reading every issue, which is amazing. So that brings me up to my follow up question Does the return of Satan actually happen 
in the DCU? Because this is some time ago. This volume came out. Was that an event? I don't think it was an event in so much as the other Swamp Thing stories were large in scale and the kind of Justice League appeared in the shadows. And, you know, but you could probably use the kind of Fantastic Four is off-world right now, so they can't help us, you know, that that oft-used excuse. Oh, yeah, they're uh, they're taking care of a Mazo yeah. on Mars or some Something terrible. Such. I don't think, isn't a Mazo DC? Is he? Yeah, he is. The Yeah, he's, he's DC. The, well, the, the other running thread that happens during this kind of Satan is coming is Swamp Thing learning more about his powers and discovering that he has kind of even more badass abilities than he ever knew. And and the first story, Nuke Face, God, what an amazing... I love the Nuke, Nuke Face story so hard. It was so, so good. Just the characterization of everybody featured in this story. Nuke Face himself is just like super delirious. He basically drinks nuclear waste... He's an alcoholic on nuclear waste, and he used to work in a mining town in PA, which was based in Centralia, and then he like followed this mining company down to Louisiana, and he, t- he found them dumping in PA, so he like came to Louisiana, he followed the company because he needed more of a fix. He drinks toxic waste, and he's like talking to this guy, this homeless guy who can't find work, his name is Bob. But Nukeface just insists on calling him Ed, and he just which I love. It, by the it way. was it was amazing how Nukeface like handled that. He was just like, yeah, okay, Ed, and, and just it's it's so horrific because like this guy's out of work. He's down on his luck. He needs a drink, and Nukeface is just like, here, you need a sip of this. Like it's just like an alcoholic beverage. He takes one sip and he turns into the guy at the end of RoboCop. Like, his face starts melting off. And it's slow, too. Oh, God, it's, it's you so even slow. see him take a drink of it and spit it up and gurgle. He's like, oh, I think I swallowed some of that. And you can see, like, the oh. liquid coming out of his eyes, his nose. His, and, tooth, like, his tooth falls oh. out. It is brutal. And the whole time, this, this nuke face character is just kind of going on a rant about America and nuclear fishing which is what he understood what was happening, you know, in that town. And the first time I read this, when this nuke face character, like, well, stepping back a little bit, Swamp Thing has this dream about what happened in this, mm. maybe it's Blossom Town or Blossomville, but it is really Centralia, PA. And, or you could call Centralia. And Swamp Thing has this vision about this, this awful, like, darkness that has hit the earth and how how painful must that be for swamp thing to envision nuclear waste touching the green at that point oh god and and how do you even like visualize that and then swamp thing and this character do meet and this guy touches swamp thing with his hand and when they first encounter each other swamp thing is like frightened in his presence he's like what are you and he's like never encountered this kind of scenario before and the guy just touches him and swamp thing's body just decays and he dies i thought that was and, amazing and, and scary yeah the scariest part was we've seen swamp thing basically sucker punch a demon and the demon like went to hell like mm-hmm. so we've seen uh, you know swamp thing basically do the undoable as far as we know 
and all he has to do is get this poison poured down his throat, and he's like, there's no fight, there's no struggle. He just essentially falls apart. That's it. He's oh, done. Oh yeah, because I mean, because Nuke Face just touches him on his chest, and Swamp Thing drops to his knees, and Nuke Face is like, "Oh, you probably need a drink. I'm going to give you the last of my drink, like innocent." And he pours the stuff down his throat. And right, it's it, Swamp Thing is so vulnerable throughout this whole series because there's so many things that he doesn't understand, and there's so many things that can affect him. And it was, you know, I want to use the word, it was chilling mm-hmm. to watch how that scene played out because we've all seen superhero fights. Punch, 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 throw them in the sun, and we're done. Mm-hmm. And instead, this was, this was, I'm struggling for the word to describe it, but it was probably the scariest confrontation of a DC hero that I've ever seen one go up against yeah it, it was it's like very five chilling. pages of him knowing he's dying and explaining how it's happening and he eventually signals to his love abby that you know to come to him and he wanted to like have his final words with her and explain and tell her what he's going to try to do to survive and it, it, like the subtext you know of this story was very obvious you know how you know nuclear energy how it's taking over, what it can do to the environment. That was like really thick, mm-hmm. obviously, in the story. But there was a secondary story that I felt was just as strong as the nuke face yeah. itself, which was the guy that was kind of in charge of this shady corporation of dumping this stuff and how he was traveling with his pregnant wife to make sure that this Louisiana drop-off would go as planned. And his, they're, they're staying in this town... And he's supposed to go out and get her milk. And he's like really sketched out about what he's doing to this town and how the bums are disappearing and everyone's dying. And he comes back. She's not there. And they eventually meet up with her the next morning. And she had gone through the forest, found Nukeface asleep. And being this devout Christian, she lays with him and prays for him. So she lays with this nuclear-infested, just despot, I think Swamp Thing even called him. And they finally walk, they, they discover her, and the scene was so beautiful in how it was laid out. They all find this woman, and they discover that she laid with this monster, mm-hmm. and they all step away from her. And this guy runs away from her. His pregnant wife mm-hmm. is infected with this, this nuclear radiation. And that, there's two pages of them just st- surrounding her, frightened of her were amazing and and she just in the in the the panel she's just screams out like why is no one coming near me right now because she has no idea what she's done oh god it was it was like it's this is vertigo stuff i mean i obviously i could see you could see why vertigo like re-put it out but and this is dc property i mean this is swamp thing but it's so much different this is like Miracle Man level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so much more and so much, so more substantial than the DCU. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this has some real weight to it. Like, it, this is telling me a parable. Like, this is something so much more, I think, that we get out of DC superhero comics. It's, it's at the next level. And I was actually thinking about that when I was reading it. It reads like a novel, just with pictures. You could easily kind of just add a, like a few words in mm-hmm. each page, and you could make this a book. And it's one you could 
you could totally understand what is happening on the page without pictures, but the pictures even add another deeper layer to it. And the other thing that happened in this first story was his attempting to regenerate himself that took, you know, I think a month or so he mm-hmm. that body dies and he moves his consciousness into the green and starts to grow again. And I thought that was a great portion of him slowly growing as like a seedling, as a plant and Abby, you know, kind of trying to help by like spraying insecticide on him and yeah. him thinking to himself because he didn't have vocal cords yet that that actually hurts and yeah. he wanted her to stop. Yeah, it was so it was so such a real moment because she and she's like watering him and she's pouring the water directly on him. She's like he's like she really shouldn't be doing that. She should water the roots, not dump <laughs> the water right on me. It was it was so so much thought was put into this everything about this. And I like how Al Moore has like a human moment for a second because you know he Swamp Thing grows. And, you know, he, he makes his first comment is pretty innocuous. And she's like, how about thanks for taking care of me and watering me for the last, you know, mm-hmm. how many ever weeks is the first thing she says. And then, of course, uh, she says something like, you know, are you stuck there? And he's probably like, yeah, probably for the next week. And so the next scene is them having like an intimate moment where, you know, she's got complete control over him. So, like, even though this is a comic about an eight foot tall thing made of the earth. It's still relatable. Like you can still have moments that touch you in a way that wouldn't happen, I guess, in like a guardians of the galaxy comic. I don't know if that makes sense. Like it's something very human about a comic, about something that's the farthest thing from. What was the third, what's the growth patterns? I'm trying to, scroll through to see what what story that was that's actually when he's he's taking uh, the long time to regenerate after being to- toxically oh spoiled. that's right because he never does meet up with nuke face again that he he kind of wanders into the world mm-hmm. and they show the newspaper clippings that's right and then constantine shows up and he explains how he's got those three friends and they're really one's an artist and makes that like really weird Oh man, that was creepy. The the person with the hand sewn into their back and their neck broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 was like the first kind of hardcore, you know, foreshadowing that something bad was going to happen, and that was really creepy. And then the one after that is the underwater vampire story, which was, I, I, I mean, it's just brilliant. Like vampires don't need air, so they just live at the bottom of this flooded town because it's there's darkness under there and then on top of that i guess i didn't have time to research but they allude to this grouping of vampires underwater being swamp thing's fault like i guess vampires took over this town in a previous issue of swamp thing i should ask amanda yeah she had read that issue and he floods the town to get rid of them but like you said they don't need air so they just kind of hang out underwater in the darkness and then you know just live there and then they and then the story starts out with these kids, you know, going to this kind of lake that was the town, and they suck this kid under, mm. and now Swamp Thing is summoned by Constantine to clean up his mess, so to speak, mm-hmm. which Swamp Thing didn't realize was even happening. And he does it, of course. <laughs> and what what is pretty great, and 
I guess the concept had never occurred to me by the time I got to this issue. But Swamp Thing doesn't need to be a physical thing. Like, he doesn't need to be an embodied uh, plant elemental. He basically dives into the earth and becomes a uh, an extension of the earth himself. I mean, the, the way he figures out how to get the vampires is not by punching them. Like, he finds out pretty quick that that won't work. Like, they're too quick. They take them apart piece by piece. So he just becomes one with the earth and through his ability to move soil and and all things related to the planet just matches the river back to the lake, makes the water run and destroys all the, the vampires. And you're like, wow, this just got to the next iteration of whatever this book can be. Mm-hmm. We just found out the scope of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And then Al Moore brings us right back because uh, Alec has a conversation with Abby that's basically, I... I'm part human. Whatever made me an elemental, part of that was born as a human man. And maybe that's why I'm I'm so good at what I'm doing is because I still, at my core, I'm a child of the earth and the earth itself. And I don't want to lose sight of that. So I can't, I don't ever want to re- retreat 100% into the green. I still want to have myself out here on the earth living as part of it. And that's, I mean, not only is that cool, that's like a beautiful sentiment and in a way a very Alan Moorish guideline of like how we should be. Mm. And and I we've been like trumpeting up Alan Moore the whole, and Will for the rest of the series, but again, the art is so perfect in this book. Every kind of just random drawing of, Alan, of Swamp Thing just up against a tree is is like a work of art just in how he draws his body and his form is gorgeous. And the, the vampire story, one of the, my favorite parts was he shifted the narrative about who was speaking very often and mm-hmm. even gave the vampires themselves a voice as they were fighting Swamp yeah. Thing. And there is some gorgeous writing in this book uh, where he's starting to like first battle the vampires and they like take a bite out of him and, and and talk about how it's vile because he has no blood and they didn't realize that. And as they're fighting, there's just, just beautiful writing. He says beneath it's gnarled and massive fists. We explode releasing our stolen scarlet, like fleas cracked by a thumbnail. And I mean, there's my favorite one, which I screenshotted ages ago when he kind of unleashes this tornado of water upon them. They say, it goes back to their point of view, and it says, One by one we melt, flesh suddenly made liquid, our skeletons undress themselves. Just good grief. Mm-hmm. But if you have the page, what's the line where they're like, he strikes us and we feel it, it's the old strength, it frightens, if like frightens us to the core. It's something, it references yeah, how the, like, here you it know, is. The earth strength moves within it, ancient and crushing and terrible. I think that I thought was that it. was a great description of if Swamp Thing had any powers, that's it. And wh- I mean, what he sp- does to conquer this, like to overcome this situation, is he he just becomes all the land around the lake. Like he just extends himself into all the land and basically like cradles underneath like Atlas and just and is just able to like part the land to like 
flat like uh you know drain this lake to expose the vampires to the sun and what and the uh, the narrative switches back to swamp thing and uh i sc- i screenshotted the page you just read slim and then i screenshotted the one i feel my way into the roots that knot within its powdery soil i gather myself in the heart of the root web its tendrils become my sinews my arms are 2 miles long Encircling the stale obsidian depths, I begin to flex my muscles, and then he just—I mean—he just becomes like the everything but the body of water. Oh, and even that like last line is delivered as obviously a total badass line, but it's not even like an in-your-face. This is a badass kind of like the the lines I make fun of for Warren Ellis comics. With like they're the female lead, like this is very subdued and it's amazing because it's, it's so poignant. Yeah, it's all so subdued. Every every moment of power is just you know you feel the power in the art. Like when he says uh, "my muscles," there's just like a picture of his face with his red eyes. But every yeah, you're right. There's no like here's my invitation moment where you know Arnold like blows up the shed or whatever. Like there's it's just. <laughs> all story and you just feel it like you just know when you read it like you get chills because you're like holy crap he's so bad a mm-hmm. how about the uh the curse issue about the woman and the ancient indians and the werewolf story what did you think of that one that was like <laughs> I, I i like if you could put the i i felt <laughs> i felt during this issue, like I felt for mothers, I felt for women just trying to do the right darn thing and how they're, how they're portrayed and how they're like, how they've been treated. Like there's so much, there's so many layers to this book and it is, it's just like, if you could (laughs) describe Twitter (laughs) in an issue of a comic (laughs) <laughs> like it's just you can't help but root for the woman and and at the same time feel for her because she is just so downtrodden that she like her she just becomes a werewolf like her her lot in life like transforms her into this bloodthirsty werewolf because that's her only outlet yeah there was a lot of layers to this to this issue and i don't presume that three men should be giving the ultimate synopsis but the the story is this woman this wife going through life and kind of just being crapped on by her awful husband and then the the b plot is this old story about how Indian women used to lock up the young women in the tribe once a month <laughs> in what was called, I think, the Red Room. Yeah, the uh, Red Lodge. The Red Lodge. The Red Lodge. So you can understand what that means. And the Red Wound was talked about, and the subtext of you know women being held down, being told what their place is, and it manifesting you know in this woman becoming a werewolf and almost killing her husband and Swamp Thing kind of entering this town as it's happening and 
them coming face to face was just a glorious page because Swamp Thing, I, I have to read it and I'm, hopefully people enjoy when I read some of this stuff because I can't stop. But there's this awesome page where they confront each other and Swamp Thing's in front of this werewolf where he, where she almost killed her husband and he says, in my mind I hear my own voice speaking saying, I am of the earth, what are you? And the wolf responds, uh, I am woman, stand not between me and my wrath. Mm. And there's so many moments in this book where you want, like Swamp Thing understands just, you know, primally that I have to just let stand by and let this happen because she needs it and she deserves it. And it was so yeah. great. I don't know if the line is something like, I know, I understand it here that I have no mandate to deny her what she wants. Mm-hmm. And then I think his like his follow up line is, and even if I wanted to confront her, I'm in her place of power, not mine. Right. Like there's, there's something about these like beautiful unspoken rules that exists like in these old elemental powers that Al Moore conjures. And there, and there's like obviously a, a caste system that we don't yet understand that he references to that is just like, just cool. I mean, that's a, how else can you describe it? It's mm-hmm. just, it, there's some mystique to it that we don't quite yet understand. And until we do, he explains the rules like poetry. I mean, it's like reading the Iliad. Like, it's just these this beautiful prose style of writing. And you forget sometimes that you're reading a comic. You mm-hmm. think you're reading something legendary when you're going through the pages. Yeah, this is another one. This is another great story where the point of view switches between Swamp Thing and the woman. And uh, one of the, one of her monologues inner monologues as she's like nearly killing her rat bee husband the maddening stench of his fear is in her nostrils she notes without surprise that he has soiled himself wretched man pathetic man it's just like with the like those words are in front of this maddened werewolf scowl in a panel it's just and and it's beautiful art is just stunning yeah how he it, it, it can is convey and that entire art team beset uh Tottlebaum and i think veitch veitch uh you're like it's a frightening drawing of a werewolf at its at the rope's end like you if you were standing in front of this drawing of the werewolf you would soil yourself as well <laughs> yeah and you're right like it's not just a werewolf it's a werewolf at her wits end like she's like she's had it and she's a werewolf and she's also had it (laughs) and you can that you can tell that in the art yeah i don't think there was any issue in this volume that i didn't find amazing and that's a rare thing to be able to say that every single story presented in a a hardcover-esque volume is a showstopper. Mm-hmm. And I think I think each one was. And I think I mean I think the only the only time I've ever experienced that has been Fear Agent. And I mean and, this and so far we're th- we're three volumes in. And it, and I agree in my book there's I mean every story mm-hmm. has been five stars so far. And we and the final one in this book was the, uh this kind of plantation that in in yesteryear housed many slaves and 
in Louisiana, they're kind of going to film a new soap in this in this old house that took place in the plantation era, reliving what took place in that era. And some strange supernatural things happen to the cast where they become the real people that lived in this house and they don't realize it. And the, the long wronged slaves of that, of that area are risen from the dead to kind of get their revenge slash respect and Swamp Thing intercedes along with Abby in a great moment where Abby tells him, you know, something strange is going over on that set. I think you should go over there. And he's like, you know, perhaps I'll go tomorrow. And she tells him, like, I think you should go tonight. He's like, okay. And he's like, let's go. And she was kind of taken aback that he would just, add up, like, without a blink of it or like a, a wink of an eyelash, just take her because she's strong and he has no reason to leave her behind. I thought that was a mm-hmm. really cool moment. Yeah, he's like, I wouldn't presume to think that you are you are not strong after what you've been through. And of course, I, you know, I trust you and I have complete faith that you're capable of handling whatever we go into. That was really cool how the, it was a, I think it was a multi-part part story, but the, the way that the transitions were so smoothly handled between the present and the past and how they would think, you know, they, they you know, they're, their psychoses like transform them into the people that were there in the past. And the, the trans, the transitions were so subtle that it just really worked well for the story. You know, when I was growing up and, uh, you know, in the comics as like a teenager, uh, one of my buddies, older brother would always be wearing like a swamp thing shirt Hmm. and would, you know, read this, you know, as it was going on, and we'd always be like, oh, Batman, Batman, Batman. He's like, you guys should read Swamp Thing. And I was like, eh. Well, like, I always remember being like, yeah, I guess. Like, it didn't do anything for me. I guess I was so visually oriented with comics. And, you know, I was reading this volume, and I was just like, I should find out where that guy is and just be like, you were right. Mm-hmm. And I'm a dummy for waiting this long for reading Swamp Thing. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, I don't have to tell you two. It's, yeah. it's just it's something else it's something beyond amazing it's like something redefining about how not not only the way you think about comic books as a medium but it redefines the way you think stories should be told and I'm giving Alan Moore a lot of credit and I've done a lot of Alan Moore bashing <laughs> on this show mm-hmm. and like I said last week I gotta take it all back this is this is it whatever this is it is it Swamp it, and Swampy. and I'm so I'm I'm actually so grateful that I am only now reading this. I I I wonder to myself that even if I had read this in my twenties, would I have had the patience enough or the wherewithal enough to understand exactly how deep this is? Mm-hmm. So I think this is probably the perfect time for me to be reading this like it is it's i don't because i don't think even like other other alan moore properties the big one i'm i'm curious to see how i would handle that now yeah i mean the big you know the big alan moore 
I can't remember. Maybe uh, and Amanda has said she, I asked her what what her favorite volume is for her to return to the show, and she said volume five. And I'm trying to remember if it's the story I'm thinking of because I was just about to make a comment about how you know their love is still very much a part of the story, and when his body was uh, changing and he's moving from body to body, he specifically says, you know no matter what body I'll have, I'll still love you the same. And there's one story that takes place in this series that, like, you know, we think we, Jen, you're talking about next level, it, swamp, it. But there's another story coming up that is the purest definition of swamp thing and love that is just mind-blowing. And it's Cannot wait. And it's Cannot excellence. wait to discover it. So I think it's volume five. I might be wrong. You're saying it runs deeper than just sex yams. <laughs> you know, it, I think the the pitch for the story would be how you know how far would Swamp Thing go oh, to man. right a wrong that has happened to Abby? Oh boy! What lengths would he go to? And maybe Batman is in it. What? <laughs> <laughs> I just jade my pee to bring uh to bring one back from the freezer. Uh, but yeah, this is. A dynamite, a dynamite trade. Absolutely. Um, God, I mean, if you haven't, if you haven't bought this this series yet, at all costs, mm-hmm. immediately. The the uh, they uh, Vertigo re-put out the hardcovers back in 2011. You can still find them out there. So worth owning in hardcover. I think Do you I, I think own I, them? I have to get, I think, four and five or five and six. I, I can't remember. Can we hide this video so Dale's mortgage company <laughs> doesn't have the... Uh, Which reminds me, I was looking for artwork for the for the show for book two, and there's actually some really attractive previous trade paperback art that they don't use anymore mm. that was really gorgeous. And I think at the end of this digital one, they had the pinup that was the old cover. So if you had gone to like the very last page, I think like mm. if you Google like Swamp Saga Swamp Thing book two cover, you see like these really gorgeous kind of earthy tone uh, covers that are just magic. Figures that's the one I'd go check now, but that's the one I left at work. <laughs> there you have it. Book three, Swamp, yes. We got your letters. I'm gonna open them up. Farrington's gonna read them to you. And if Mark was still alive when we recorded this, it was his birthday. So rest in peace, Mark. Oh, happy birthday. I don't have uh, his beloved Facebook. Mark Farrington is Mr. Facebook. That guy has Facebook in the palm of his big paws. Letters, his big dead paws. (laughs) You know, one time I shook Mark's hand in 2009. Yeah. I'm technically still shaking. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Letters at paperkeg.com. You write us a letter. We'll read it on there. Our first letter comes to us from friend of the show, uh, Gary Anchetta. He writes... In regards to Swamp Thing Volume 2. This is such an interesting volume of Swamp Thing. Neil Gaiman even points out that the first issue of this volume is what turned him from a reporter to a comics writer. 
You can definitely tell the influence of this work on Gaiman's writing in early Sandman and in his Superman Green Lantern Go to Hell stories that he does for DC. And it's interesting that you guys point out the similarities between the funny animal space creatures and Bone. They're both inspired by Walter Kelly's Pogo. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, which is about funny anthropomorphic swamp creatures. Many of the strip were allegorical, using the swamp and the relationship to the swamp as the backdrop for larger social and political issues. Lastly, if you get the chance, Moore wrote a few essays specifically about this run called Writing for Comics. Avatar published it around 2003. He talks about how he consulted atlases and phone books to get the setting right for Huma. He also talks about how billboard advertising, specifically a Gillette ad, influenced the pacing for Matt Cable's death scene. Hmm. That might be the closest you get to knowing what Alan Moore was thinking for any of those issues. That's Gary Anchetta is like the the knowledge base that we need. <laughs> and when he, I mean, he sends emails at like 6.30 the day after the show is, like 6.30 the morning after the show is released. And so, like, he's amazing. Thank you for writing in, Gary. And I really want to, I really want to find this, this, um, the essays he did. I really want to read that. Gary reminds me of, like, your friend who you always call, like, hey, my air conditioner broke. And Gary's like, well, tell me what model you have, and I can explain to you each step mm. in getting it to work again. Like, your your most knowledgeable best friend that seemingly knows everything about everything. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna ca- I'm gonna call Gary next time my air conditioner's yeah. on the fritz, and I guarantee he'll get it working again. Gary uh, Ace and Cheddar. Oh, oh yeah, that's oh, it. Yeah. That's the one. Ace Ace Cheddar. Uh, you have an open Gary invitation to uh, Baltimore. I don't know where you are. You probably like the anim- anonymity uh, that the <laughs> internet just, provides you. That and we, we're just saying your first and yeah, last name repeatedly. If you want to come to Baltimore. And drink with us three fellows and the guy who wrote the next letter. Transition. Segue. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, I feel like a prize fighter training for the big event. Except instead of my muscles, I'm conditioning my liver. This year's con has an astounding lineup. Wade, Snyder, Soulman, Templesmith, Chang, Tinian, J.G. Jones. Roster like that would send any comic loveling red-blooded american from six to twelve in three seconds flat i feel like he mined old episodes for a dale joke for that one he may have which me which earns him another free drink in my book <laughs> to top it off i have a chance of tipping some pints with a few journeyman drunkards such as yourself well there's still plenty of time to gather my books top off the flasks and book the hotel room just a friendly reminder that we are almost 60 days away tick tock oh. That is from at Irrational Beers on uh, Twitter. Scott, well, we cannot wait to hang out with you. He will be surprised by how rational I am when it comes to ordering two drinks at a clip. He's probably going to he's going to say, "You are the jer- most journeymiest journey- journeyman." That's what he's going to say. That's, That's exactly what he's going to say. <laughs> I hope he puts it just like that too, because right, he's mining data. That's how he, that's how he stays in our good graces. <laughs> Our next letter 
You might have heard this guy mentioned a time or two. We like to call him Our Man 101 on the Twitter. He writes, Tom Hanks as Jarvis or Robin Williams as the new Dark Knight villain. Listening to episode 50 and just hilarious. Anyway, you've talked a lot. Uh, you talked about a lot of origin stories, film or comic. You've also talked about teams a lot, but you've never covered the most important origin of them all, the A-team, the paper keg story. For new listeners like myself, although working my way through the archives makes me feel like part of the furniture, i love to know more about how you guys met and where this all started. I don't know what the Nerdcast is, even if it was a review of Paper Keg so far. So I think what he means is he has no idea what the Nerdcast is, uh, but he would accept an origin story or our personal review of our time here. Uh, following, uh, failing this, I'd like to know your top high and worst lows on the podcast from a show content perspective. Same again from a comic perspective. I think our low point has to be the... Uh, fireside experiment. Uh, or, the, light. or the unreleased <laughs> drunk episode from NYC. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's Thank that's God that never saw the light of day. That's definitely the low point. Uh, listener lightning round. Transmetropolitan. Mm. Slim, you chump. <laughs> uh, and that's where the review ends. No, he, he continues and says, <laughs> this book is more relevant now than ever when everything should be questioned and the truth is all that matters. Read me. Uh, did anyone read Rebels or is reading Trees? I've just picked up Harrow County, too. Uh, seems good for a horror book. Happy kegging, Our Man 101. So his question, how did we get started? What, what's our origin? Dale, you want to take this one? Hmm. Our origin is, <clears throat> to try to keep it too long, didn't read. Um, I essentially met Slim on the internet and I think maybe he sensed somehow that I wasn't insane <laughs> and he let me come in and host a couple of episodes of the Nerdcast because he was in a pinch and I was, you know, there. And uh, and what is the Nerdcast? Or what the was Nerdcast, it? yeah, Nerdcast is a, a nerdy type show that was a podcast but also streamed at 7 or 8 o'clock on Monday night so it was like on this radio stream from a local DJ that we kind of knew um, but we, we met kind of on his message board where Slim started advertising the Nerdcast from the first episode I started listening live because I was I was so impressed that a show like that was going to be first streaming second the the guys seemed pretty local because it was a lo- you know it was on a message board for a local DJ and third that it was like I was going to be in on the ground floor because I, like podcasts even at that time were like tech tech podcasts were like Leo Laporte episode 200 and something or other and then to hear Slim and his co-host Dub Ill like their sense of humor was just on point. Like I immediately knew I would I would get along because they were like right up my alley. They were they, it wasn't a serious show. It was like the, the the right amount of tech news and talk. We used to take we used to take music breaks. We used to play like two or three songs 
during the live broadcast, and we also used to take phone calls. And this was like 2009 or eight. Yeah. Yeah, and I call, I remember I called in. Like, I was so nervous. I had the nuts to finally call in. And, I I mean, I remember the first time I called in, it would, the, the phone connection was so bad. I kept, I, I'm sure I kept talking over them. And I sang a few verses of Tea for the Tiller Man by Cat Stevens. <laughs> Do you and, remember what episode that is? Because I would love to actually, I, I rarely would go into the archives for right. something, but I would go for that. Um, I would be, I would never listen to it. It's got to be within the first 15 episodes, maybe 10, maybe like five. And I first. remember the last episode of Nerdcast 50, Nerd, and the early podcast never lasted very long. We, we had a live show in South Jersey where we had a bunch of friends of the show come to a, another friend of the show's house and Dale couldn't make it. So if I recall correctly, we set up a laptop so that Dale could Skype in for the live show just to watch. Right. And uh, it was, that was a scene. It was, a, and uh, I believe J-Man took a picture of the setup and it was my head and the, the, the one of the only meetups during that time, I had worn my Eagles jersey because it was the playoffs or something. So, like, an Eagles jersey was draped over a stool with a with a laptop with my head on it. And I was actually during during the meetup of the live episode fifty, the last show was the night I the night or a couple of days after my first son was born. So, like, I was in the hospital during this time. It was. It was the best and worst time of my life because I couldn't be there live because I was like, uh, that I was like, what's you know what's going to happen after this? But I stayed friends with Slim and I eventually met Jonesy. I can't remember if Jonesy and I were even like friends at that point, but Slim and I tossed around the idea of a comic because I st- I started coming on and calling in with my comic book pick of the week on Nerdcast, and I had. Uh, done that a few times then we started tossing around the idea when i was over his house to the host episode of nerdcast we like kicked around the idea of maybe like a comic book show is feasible Mm -hmm. and then we started nerdcast comics and i was it was a you know it was an s show but I was on. I was only on the first couple episodes of that, and then you know I just couldn't make it up with my young son. I and Jonesy and I did that together a few times. I w- I think the first episode was me and Mary and Slim. We might have recorded two at those during those times, mm-hmm. and then I I just I just eventually stopped going because my son was like a month or two old, and this was November or December when that stopped but i had stopped going to to record that like maybe september or october this is like the oral history of i know i'm like I, I end up paper keg <laughs> i end up like going through it all when i try to give you the too long didn't read version um <laughs> slim son the total opposite of the yeah, too long didn't read it yeah, was amazing i apologize for that um but it was a good oral history though and slim son james was to be born in December, so right before that happened, Nerdcast Comics stopped. And then... Well, it at, was Nerdcast Comics, but it was it morphed into The Comics Podcast. Remember, it had that oh, name. Oh, yeah. It became yeah, its right. own thing, and then it stopped after like 22 or so. Mm-hmm. And then 
after that, we came up with the idea to do a comics website that we would write and also do a podcast. So the writing portion, obviously we flaked out on that eventually. Hindsight being 2020 and all that. But the podcast obviously has remained. And the podcast truly, because of the chemistry, even with Mark, I mean, Mark was a different in a different situation at the time. He was single, swinging, and everything. But our chemistry, I, I believe, is just second to none. You can't find better chemistry between us. I'm not trying to brag or anything, but we've become the best of friends. And just the fact that we just know each other and we know the timing of our jokes and uh, yeah it's just i like at this point we just can't see the show stopping just because we know this is something so amazing slim's probably going to break it to us now that he's (laughs) ending the show but i say that i i tried to say that with the utmost confident but not really being super confident because i don't know you know, who knows what the future may bring or <laughs> not bring. That's part of the chemistry, right? That is, I mean, that's, that part of, that's part of the magic chemistry of paper cake. Yeah, exactly. Never knowing when the other shoe will drop. And I will say that the low point for me was the New York Comic Con podcast. <laughs> Many years ago, we went to New York Comic Con, and for whatever reason, we had the idea to record a show in the hotel room, and it was so... un. It was the opposite of my standards that I stopped the show maybe 20 minutes in the recording and we, and we just stopped it. I, I, I couldn't take it anymore. And it was, to bad, to be fair, to be fair, it was not just us three. There were like six or seven people in the podcast. Right. It was, there was too many people. I think we right. had like three people beside us. So it was uncontrollable. And I think I actually swore off of live shows forever at, at that exact mm. moment. I said never again. It was like being on a bucking bronco, right? And having no control. <laughs> I, I'm I I'd be curious. I don't know if I'd ever be curious enough to find curious enough to find out. But I'd be curious enough to find out if what the three of us could do drunk, just the three of us. But yeah, I mean that was a long time ago. I yeah, obviously would be down for it now. And that was my other comment that I was going to make. How obviously I'd never go back and listen to him again. But how different we are from you know. The first couple shows. I was a raging alcoholic. First 70 shows, first 100 shows. (laughs) I I mean, the only thing that he might be discovering now is the the great Jones and Lowe's beer alcohol ban of around episode 30 or so. (laughs) When I used to bring two cases of beer to every recording, like a total lush. And then Jonesy turned into Frank Sinatra. You know, with, surrounded by thirty beautiful women on those those episodes, he was <laughs> yeah. he was styling and profiling. You know, Nature Boy Jonesy loves beer over there. <laughs> yeah, that's so. The low point for me is probably NYCC. The low there's, I mean, in for the sake of comedy, I probably shot my mouth off a few too many times, and like my more sensitive no. nature now, I don't even have to like I don't remember most of it. Thank goodness, you're better angels. They are probably listening to it now. Clark and uh, there's somebody else making their way through the back catalog yeah. too, but it's it I, hurts me to know that they're probably listening to some of my comedic. I do wonder I mean, if like as a sh- I do wonder as a sh- as like are we as funny or am I as funny? But I got I can't worry about that. So let's just concentrate <laughs> on the comic talk. <laughs> I find it still unfathomable. That people will want to listen to 
200 plus hours of us just to catch up. It's amazing. It's really humbling. <laughs> it's very humbling. I mean, because I think of all the dumb ass I've said over the last 200 hours of podcast, and it's got to be a staggering amount of bull ass that I've been spitting. Staggering. Mm-hmm. 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 Is that the last mm-hmm. letter? Do we have any more? Uh, that's it. That's the last letter. Unless Dragon Fro, you out there? You got one hot? Yeah, definitely the last one so far. Next week, book four of one of the greatest modern masterpieces in the graphic story medium. Be there. You know, if you're bored, shoot us an iTunes review. Yeah? Yeah, they still matter in some circles. Nobody knows how, but they matter. Right. People still ask for them. That's for D sure. And we'll see everybody next week. Talk to me, Goose. Great show. That was a great show. It was. Really was. I, uh, I, I might even need to clip that oral history that Dale gave us. <laughs> Turn that into its own file. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. That was good. It was Sorry. great. <laughs> Dale, I could listen to you read the newspaper. You know that. Oh, so do you want me... Okay, so... Can we talk about Centralia, Pennsylvania? Oh, yeah. Here you go. Sure, yeah. Start swinging. This is the oral history of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Okay. If you guys out there don't know about Centralia, Pennsylvania, get ready for some spine-tingling, real-life stuff. Um, but I've always been, like, kind of intrigued by it. My my spine always tingled thinking about it. But at the beginning of this book, Steve Bissett talks about definitely being it being in the news when they're making this and that's why nuke the nuke face story had um had featured this centralia like setting and we talked about uh, nothing but trouble before that you know kind of was about centralia it was in the movie but um centralia pennsylvania is in the anthracite coal region of pennsylvania anthracite coal burns hot burns clean burns a long time and uh, that is coal crunchy, coal country. Um, they mined this coal for uh, about a century, from the 1800s to the early 1900s. And uh, 1962 Memorial Day weekend, in one of the um, areas of Centralia, PA, designated as the dump, 
uh, where all the people's trash ended up. The uh, the fire company actually set fire to the trash, which is not out of the ordinary. That's what that's what dumps did all the time back then, to burn the trash down, you know, to make room for the Memorial Day, whatever. Turns out that the uh, where they were burning the trash was right over top of a coal scheme of a, of an old strip mine. So within the next couple weeks, well, they they noticed that there's like steam coming out of the ground around the area. Immediately after, they think they got the problem licked, where they got this underground fire put out. And as the weeks go by, they start to notice that there is a a coal seam underneath the ground, burning hot. It's on fire. There's uh, anything above the fire. The roots, the plants are, are turning to ash, steam coming out of the ground. And before they know it, the fire is out of control. They had a chance to stop it when they did, but they didn't. The things they tried didn't necessarily put out the fire. The fire starts to spread out in, in all directions from this focal point. So under the town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, was a raging coal fire where the coal seams were just burning. You can, and they by the time they really noticed it was a problem. They couldn't do anything about it because the government wasn't stepping in. The, uh, the, things, that they tr- the things that they proposed to, a way to put it out was too much money. So for 20-some-odd years, almost 30 years, no, 20 years, it's burning. I mean, it's still burning today. In 1981 or two, there's this kid, Todd Dombrowski, He's playing in his grandma's backyard, and he notices steam steam coming out of the ground. So he t- he starts to walk over to it, and there's this hot mud that just sucks him right down into the ground. So the fire was feet from the surface, and he survives. Luckily, like his cousin pulls him out, but that's what gets na- finally national attention. And that's what people start chiming in, like Washington gets involved, the senator of Pennsylvania gets involved, and they have this problem on their hands that they, they, they have no solutions. So the town takes a vote. What are we going to do? Are we going to stay and try to fight this fire? Or, or is the, the, uh, the government at this point volunteer to buy out the townspeople? And the town, fearing for their safety, I mean, we're talking like carbon monoxide seeping into people's basements, other toxic gases from under the ground coming up in people, people's basements. And they didn't have carbon monoxide detectors back then that looked like fire detectors. These were hundred, like these were $1,000 machines that were the size of jukeboxes that they had to put in houses and stuff. So in 84, the government's, the, the town votes, every, like the majority wins that they need to leave. And the government uh, at that time said the amount of $42 million we would be able to buy everybody in the town out and the cost to try to put out this fire and destroy half the town by digging this huge ditch would be like half a billion dollars. So most people by that time, by that time the population of Centralia is like a thousand people. People start taking the, monies, uh, the money from the government. They start moving out. 
and day by day families are moving out so entire city blocks this is like there's there's if you google it now it's just fields with streets but there's entire city blocks that were just like evacuated and they so they tear down how these row houses city blocks at a time next 10 years that happens by 1992 or 3 there's 20 people left in town so the government like enforces eminent domain they start evicting people out of their homes because the fire is still raging underneath the town there's like if there's like steam vents they had to like bypass route 61 because the the road was buckling and steaming and there's like they had to they drilled boreholes to try to like vent out the toxic gases like above the town it's it's crazy stuff and so by like 94 there's nobody in town but save for 10 people there's these like sporadic like half of a row half a double half of a half a double left like supported by buttresses and the the, the government just being like kind of lazy and not enforcing the evictions they they they've been living there and they just recently like the townspeople the seven people left in town or so they just won the rights to not have to leave and they can live out their lives they can live out their lives but as soon as they die the houses become Pennsylvania property, which they are now. They're just living in Pennsylvania-owned houses right now, but they're allowed to stay until they die, and then Pennsylvania will come in and mow the town over. What the, are, the fire's still burning. How old are the, the seven people? Are they, like, elderly that are, like, the ones that people that are like, I ain't moving out of yeah. here. I lived here yeah. my whole life. Yeah, that's basically it. There's, six, there's 70, 80-year-olds left. In um, How do they get food? How do they get well, to the grocery store? Yeah, like you could still drive around. You could still drive out of town. They have water. My, my wife learned to drive in Santa Aurelia. They have water and electricity in these homes. Yeah, they. they I mean, they still have you. They still have a fire department. They have a municipal building. But they if have there's a post se- office, are they also the fire department? These seven people mm-hmm. or the the seven? Yeah. No, it's it's subsidized by the state. No, I mean like so. There's seven people in this town. Mm-hmm. So who is running electric for the town? Like, is there a building manned by, you know, municipal staff? No, they're. I mean, they're still getting their electric by PSENG or whatever is up there. Like, they're still paying for electric. Yeah, it's just, it's not like a situation where they have a ton of facilities to serve these seven people. And I'm trying to think about the last time I drove through it. It might just be like, like two municipal buildings and then the seven homes like all around each other in this one main road that passes through Centralia. Mm-hmm. And then you can still drive through the back streets, the ones that are still drivable. And like on a cold day, you can still see the steam coming through the ground. And Dale, I mean, Dale, I'm surprised like you should come up with me one weekend. I would love and, to. And go for a <laughs> ride with me and my father-in-law and he will tell you the history of the, this whole thing and show you. Mm-hmm. Dale's history was pretty about. great. I thought it feels like Dale could write a book at this point. I've never I, heard I, anyone <laughs> recite a history of something outside of a classroom that it's, well. It's amazing. I've been consuming it all. There's uh, there's this hour hour ten minute documentary. It's on, it's on YouTube. It's called The Town That Was, and it came out in like '06 or '07. So it's it gives you a really good idea of the history of the town but even like the main focus of this this documentary John Lakaitis Jr 
he's been evicted since then. He was like the youngest guy still living in town then. But that's so it's it's still like kind of out of date. But there's this um, centraliapa.org. There's this pretty up to date website about with these like short articles. It's fascinating. Like I've been consuming everything the past week. It's like uh, it's like my Vietnam all over again. Like I'm I'm getting into this deep. I but I feel like I feel like more. I have more closure with Centralia because there's just. It is what it is. I mean, the coal, the, some people, some scientists say there's enough coal down there to burn for 250 years longer. Like, the fire's just going to burn. Yeah, was, isn't there an anecdote, like, the Fed actually came in in the late 60s and offered to stop the fire then for some cheap amount? Mm-hmm. And the governing body of Centralia was like, nah, it's fine. We don't need it. Yeah, yeah. And then by the time that the 80s came around, it was a half a million or whatever it was. Half a billion half a billion so they yeah. were so they were just like 42 million to get everybody out of here and buy them all new homes and let yeah. the, keep, the fire keep burning so did you in your research of uh schuylkill county did you come across like blackjack kehoe and all those historical figures yet i haven't heard about him i heard about i've read about the molly mcguire's well, he was the he was the leader of oh, okay. the Molly Maguires. Okay, and they I, had... I can take you to his home in Gerardville. Oh wow! And there's a tavern now there now called the Hibernian House. Jesus, and probably... it's it's still staffed by the descendants, <laughs> and they'll tell you they'll show you the whole history. I know you should the, come up uh, to you should come up to Schuylkill County for a weekend. I would love to. I would love to. I know the uh, the the founder of Centralia was murdered by four Molly Maguires, which is yeah, just the Irish mob. It sounds like Molly Maguires. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really fascinating and like there, there's like very little coal mining operation left at all, but most coal that is mined is, is shipped to China. They're the biggest coal buyers. And what there's, there, there was a conspiracy theory going around thinking that like PA wanted everybody out so they could claim rights to the coal mine so they could just like have laid claim to all the coal underneath, but anthracite coal is so difficult to mine that and nobody needs anthracite coal anymore there's another kind of coal like bituminous coal it burns dirtier but it's easier to mine and that's like like 96 percent of the the world's of that coal was like out in wyoming or something like that it's it's fascinating centralia is like it's it's a fascinating story we need to put together a long weekend where you come up with us and mm. and just live the history of Pennsylvania coal country. Need to live that history, babe. <laughs>